Hi and welcome to Cold Coffee Podcasts, where we share powerful inspiration by positive people. Stories of people just like you and me who've overcome adversities and challenges in their lives. Now today, I'm really, really excited, as I always am, to actually welcome my daughter, Rihanna. Now, obviously, Rihanna's going to share her story, and it's actually really difficult for a mum to actually hear everything that Rihanna's actually gone through. But what I am is super proud of the way that she's moved forward after overcoming the challenges that she has faced within her life. So with no more ado, we're going to move on to Rihanna. Hiya. I'm really pleased to have you here and thank you so much for agreeing to come on and actually to share your story because it's a really, really powerful story as I know it Um, and one I think that a lot of people face. We're going to just give a little warning here. This this story does contain content of domestic abuse um, and... I wouldn't say violence necessarily. Well, yes. And so, also yes. rape as well. Yeah, exactly. So there is, you know, there's stories about rape, there's stories about domestic abuse. So if this isn't for you, it's time to turn off. If it is for you and you really, really want to hear Rihanna's story, then we'd love to have you on the, on the ride, you know, today where we share it. So where are we going to start? We're going to start with your teenage years. Yeah. So let's start there. Um. So I always had a difficult time in school ever since as much as I can remember. I remember my teenage years being particularly hard, never feeling like I truly fit in, didn't really know how to act or react. or And I always was trying to put on this persona of someone who I wasn't trying to fit in, but it never really worked. And I was very heavily bullied in school and I never really felt like I had this place. But I was always a passionate cook and... From the age of 14, 15, I was already working in restaurants and weekends and evenings. It was something I really loved. Like I did competitions, did all these things. And all I knew is when I finished school, I wanted to become a chef. And as we were saying earlier, everyone was convincing me not to be a chef. Yeah, they were, weren't they? Your teachers, everybody was convincing you not to be a chef. And what I want to just, you know, sort of interject and say here that actually despite everything that you went through as a teenager, the fact that you followed your dreams and your passion to go forward in the way that you wanted to go forward, I think is just inspiring all by itself. So I just wanted to sort of put that out there. So when I was around 16 and deciding what college to go to, um, we're looking at the local college, but it was um, pretty much quite notorious for being quite a bad college. And so we were looking at two others, one down in Havant near Portsmouth and one up in London. And in the end, I decided to go up to the one in London. That meant for six months, when I was 16, 17, I was commuting every day from Brighton to London, which is not too bad if you live near the station, but we don't didn't live near the station. But in the end, I was spending around four and a half hours traveling every day. And I wasn't fitting in in college as well. It was quite a difficult time because um, I was quite an academic kid. So I understood things quite quickly, whereas sometimes the others in catering college it was a different environment why they wanted to be there um so I didn't feel like I fit in as well so it was a bit of a weird time so just after I turned 17 I remember talking to you and just going I want to move up to London because this commute is killing me like I was so tired I was also working weekends down in Brighton as well so I was just like non-stop on the go and you you agreed (laughs) Well, yeah, because I was always a parent or I feel like I was a parent who didn't ever want to, you know, hold my children back in following their dreams. And you were very ambitious, should we say, you know, always, always, all the way through school. You know, you were one of those high, you know, I didn't, I feel like I didn't, I, I mean, please correct me if you felt, feel differently, but I felt like I didn't ever push you in terms of having to achieve, you know, but you pushed yourself to achieve. You were always one of those people who, you know, if if somebody else was doing something, you had to, you were always wanting to achieve it at the highest possible level. And a lot of that was to do with that I wasn't fitting in socially. So it was like, okay, I'm going to put all my concentration then into getting the most out of my education at school instead of the social side of education. Um, so it's in a way my way of distracting as well. But yeah. I always wanted to achieve. Or I was very headstrong. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yes, she was very headstrong. <laughs> I'm still quite headstrong, but calm down a bit now um but 
I moved up to London when I was 17 and I was only originally there for five days a week and I'd come back down at weekends but still I was working weekends down in Brighton so it was still really busy time and then I got offered a place in apprenticeship and I just went yes because then I wasn't in school time with people my own age who I was struggling to get along with and I just I enjoyed working and so I went ahead and did this apprenticeship but because I was then working in London I needed to be there full time so I remember in the, that summer still 17 um moved out of the house so I was in and that originally I was in a house with just a mum you know, more like a lodger and she looked after me whereas then I moved into a house chef um and that's where I really started working my first full-time job as a chef I'd worked full-time for in summer and half term so this was first time full-time and for the next couple of years that's what I was doing I was just living um I was still having a really difficult time I felt very isolated um I was away from the family um also it was really hard to make friends in a work environment when you're 17 and you can't go out for a drink with them after work or things like that and I'm not a wasn't then and still not I'm not not a drinker so it's a bit like it's hard to socialize especially in chefing environments which very much circles around drinking and drugs mm. um and I just never really felt like I fit in I still was trying to put on this persona with someone I wasn't and I just didn't really have anyone they felt in London I had you guys but near nearby it was really difficult and my mental health took a few dives at times um and I wasn't in a good place and that's when I on a night out just met this guy called Sh- called <laughs> <Ed>. <laughs> we can't really mention names so we'll just, we'll just decide we're going to call him S yeah um where I met S <laughs> um and we got on like a house on fire immediately and I felt like I could be myself and that was the first time ever I could just felt like I could be myself and for the he um he didn't live in he lived in the UK then but he was moving back to his home country and so we knew it was just a short term but I was just happy to be happy for a while and to have someone who cared for me but then we entered this long distance relationship and this is where things started to turn quite sour but quite slowly over time um he just it was quite controlling and I felt like I had to talk to him every day which was quite hard when you got a chef job or for two months of it I was traveling around Southeast Asia didn't get to have signal all the time so it felt like I was constantly living around how to get signal to get in contact with S um but things were still happy for a while he came over and visited he met you guys um and you picked up on one thing. Yeah, I mean, we did notice certain things, actually. And I remember um, Sam, as in um, Rihanna's brother, and I having a chat about it, you know, because he was talking about things like, oh, my future wife and, you know, the f- future mother of my children, which just, I don't know, you hadn't been together very long and it just seemed, Three, um, it seemed very presumptuous and, uh, yeah, quite controlling. And, and you know, he came across as a very lovely, outgoing um friendly guy you know and all the rest of it but there was definitely something about him that was quite we could see that was quite controlling and I just got to the point in around so we met in May and around November of that year I'd started a new job um which I was loving but it was still quite it was a lot more stressful in some ways um and I just felt like in some ways I wasn't living my life like because I was either working or revolving around him and I just wasn't happy in the relationship anymore and I talked about in the future are we going to be living in the same country and because he was at home in his home country doing nothing he didn't have a job he was just sort of it wasn't um studying and I just felt he was trying to push me to move to where he was but I had a full-time job I was in a friendship couldn't go there was no movement about him ever coming over here to stay and I just went, okay, there's no future. So I ended the relationship. When you're in a long distance, that's quite hard because it's on a phone or on FaceTime. And he wasn't happy. Um, but in the end, we, uh, I was just like, look, this is just because we're not going to be ever in the same place. This is not about, in a way, the relationship. This is just about we're never going to be in the same place. At the time, I still didn't realise on the other stuff before, still processing. 
Um, well, it was your first real relationship, wasn't it, as well? And, you yeah. know, we learn and we don't really know what to always expect in relationships and things like that. So that's always part of a learning curve. Yeah. Um, but not that much long after that, I had a staff party. And um, I was just on my way. It was a long journey. I was on the bus. And we decided to remain friends. So I just texted him to see how he was doing. Um, and didn't hear back from him. And so I was out at this party. Um, he then, I missed loads of texts from him because I'm at a staff party. We were having fun. It was a Christmas party. Um, and then he gets, the text gets him more and more aggressive that I'm not answering him. And that uh, he was putting a lot of blame onto me and calling me some quite horrendous names, if I remember. And in the end, I turn off my phone because I'm like, I don't want to see this. But then when I turn it on to go home, because I actually had drunk quite a bit that night because that was quite traumatic. And the people I was with, chefs, just kept on bringing me glasses of wine, didn't realise how much I was drinking. So the friend I was with just said, I want your phone to be on your way home to make sure you're okay. Um, so I did that. And then he started calling me and screaming at me and all these things, calling me horrible things. And after that, in the end, we stopped, didn't sit down together, but I got home and I talked to him and just said, we went for it, we both calmed down and things seemed to be okay. We weren't really talking after that, but he had the thing where he was coming back to the UK. He had his um, degree graduation. Um, so he had to come back to mine because he'd left some things there when he last visited, um, one being a suit, which he needed for his graduation. So, um, I was running late home from work that day, so he was waiting in the pub nearby. Because my plan originally was to go home, get the stuff, and just bring it to him. I met him in the pub because it was on the way home. We had a drink, we chatted. It was quite nice. It was, it felt a lot like old time. And it was really quite nice. So we went back to mine, and I was getting all the stuff for him. And I went to give him a goodbye kiss because, like, the, like, especially for the five weeks we had together in May they're still precious memories in a way to me now that was so good I just wanted to end this relationship on a good note from there things sort of spiraled and originally I did give my consent but I have a problem um where I sometimes feel quite a lot of pain during sex and I just went to him no stop quite aggressive and I told him no um he didn't listen and he pinned me down and there's not much more to what needs to be said about that because you can tell what's happened from there. He then left and I've never seen him after that again. I did text him around Christmas, um, New Year time because I was starting to process what had happened. It took me a long time to realise. I, I went to work the next day, like absolutely fine. Went through Christmas, it was all fine because this was just before Christmas. Beginning of New Year, starting to process what was going on. I was texting him, I was quite angry. But before I could actually ask, not ask him, but confront him, he blocked me. So I never even got answers, really. And I then started to ignore what had happened to me. So I was blocking it out. And I tried to talk to one of my friends about it one night. Um, but we had a little falling out. So in the end, didn't process it that night. Um, but a little while later, in mid to late January, um, I ended up going out on a date with this guy who we're going to call A. And we were talking and I brought up something just saying, look, for one thing, what's really important to me, we're like setting boundaries. So positive things. Like if I say um, no, even during sex, you need to stop. I feel pain during sex. He said, of course, why wouldn't I do that? Said, oh, my last boyfriend didn't. And then that's where he put the word rape onto that. And my mind then very suddenly went, oh, this is what's happened to me. And then I broke down quite quickly. Well, I can see it's making you really emotional now. It's, you know, it's a hard story. And thank you so much for sharing it. Yeah, that sort of time is quite difficult. It's, it's all sort of loads of things piled on together. But I have quite a slow processing time. So sometimes people notice things before I do. And for someone else to put that name on it, I was a bit like, oh, no, what are you talking about? But actually, yeah, 
that that is. Um, but I still wanted to ignore it. I still went back to work. Um, I did tell my head chef what had happened and that I actually wanted some time off. He sort of refused because um, um, he couldn't let a staff member take time off in that time. I did get a, bit, a week off a few weeks later, but it wasn't really when I needed it. But in the end, I started having this relationship with A, and I felt really quite connected to him because he knew what, what had happened to me, and not many people did. I didn't tell you for a month or two afterwards. My brother... He told us mid-February. Mid-February. Mm. Um, my brother Sam knew before. Um, we're quite close. And he came up to see me a few times to make sure I was okay. Um, I felt connected to A quite a lot because he knew and he understood. And he understood because he um, said he went through it as a child. So he, it felt like he empathised. And we were going through this time. He was lovely. He was caring. He was really supportive. But even though he was all that, I just didn't really feel like I liked him. Like in that way, I was like, you seem to be a nice person. I don't know if I want to commit, especially with what I've just been through. I don't feel like this is a right time to start a relationship. Yeah, and I think that's fair enough. Um, so a couple of months later, probably March time, um, he started pressuring to me to commit into a relationship. Because it's been two months. And in the end, I went, what am I waiting for? Like, he's doing all, in my head, he's doing all the right things. So in the end, I committed and we were in this relationship. And from that point, things started to go downhill. Um, and it was really subtle at first. Um, we had, there's a lot of uh, gaslighting in the relationship. So whenever I was upset with something he did, it was always turned back onto me, calling me crazy mental, blaming my mental health, blaming what had happened before with S. Um, it was never his fault. Um, and that was the way it started. So I started to feel quite uneasy in my own thoughts and beliefs. Um, in around April time, um, I decided to go to the police about S and report him. And it was quite a snapshot decision. I was lying in bed one night and I just went, tomorrow I'm going to the police. It just needs to be done. I told A and he originally said, yeah, I'll come with you. I was then waiting at Charing Cross Police Station, um, ready to go in, waiting for him to finish work, to come and meet me. He then texted me saying he can't come. And the reason why is because he was arrested in the past because he slammed his sister's hand in a door, if I remember correctly, and he got arrested. And that experience is traumatic for him. because He says that he never did that. It was all a lie his sister made up. His sister, he had this whole view of his sister was trying to turn his family against him. So that was, a police station was too triggering for him to come. And it me in my head goes, okay, that's understandable. I went in by myself. I did text a friend who I lived with at the time, who did come and meet me a couple of hours later. But I had someone with me in the end. Um, so I, and that was really difficult. That whole experience of going to the police was from, really challenging well, of course it was i mean i think you know i'm absolutely what yeah i mean you know i but again full of admiration the fact that you actually plucked up the courage and went and actually when um a didn't come with you that you still went through that door and did it which is absolutely amazing and it was really quite traumatic and it, so i went in the first like it's not appointment but when i went in and report it you have to different police officers you've got to write down details but they have to invite you back for a video interview um which was um a week or so later a few days later um but as when i got home um a had gone out with one of my flatmates and had come back very drunk and this was unusual for a because he was teetotal because mm. he used to be an alcoholic and that was a really worrying sign and again, it, he seemed to blame me for not being able to come. That I should be understanding of why he couldn't be able, he wasn't able to come. And I said, "Are you going to be able to come to my video interview next week?" And he was just very iffy and umming and going, "Maybe I'm not sure what police station that." I'm like, "It's, it's Lewisham." He went, "Oh, that's the police station I was taken to when I was arrested." So no, I mean, 
So in the end, I was like, okay, don't worry about it. I will find someone who can come with me, who will be there to support me. And that was my best friend, who's now my partner. Um, and this created a lot of issues. And that was because um, my best friend didn't actually live anywhere near Lewisham. Um, he lived in Hounslow, which is the opposite side of London. It was working late the night before. It went, can I sleep on your sofa? Me, without thinking, goes, yes, of course, you can sleep on my sofa. A wasn't happy that he was sleeping on my sofa because he thought something was going to happen. Um, and he got really angry. And then he changed his mind saying, no, I will come to your video interview. I, went, I don't want you to come anymore because you're now coming for the wrong reasons. Um, and in the end, he agreed. But after that, me invited that friend to sleep on my sofa everything changed and our relationship was not really ever a relationship again um and so i did my video interview and just to wrap up that part of the story short nothing ever came out of the police investigation with s they invited him in for an interview he came all the way in to the uk to have it done um they told me he they, he hired a hotshot lawyer um but in the and I took my phone to see if they could recover any of the old texts, but I deleted them because they were traumatizing, so they couldn't get anything. And in the end, they told me nothing could be done. Yeah, it's just you know, it's so difficult, isn't it? But yeah, <sighs> okay. So I'm going to try and keep what Adam A did short, um, because there's a lot. But I've already mentioned the gaslighting made me feel crazy. And not long after that, he did a repeat of S. And that was the first time. And again, my consent was ignored. I was in pain. I said, stop. And he didn't. And after that, I did confront him. I went, what you did was wrong. I said from the very start. And he turned it back around on him. He started crying, saying that I'm going to end the relationship. He made a mistake. He didn't understand what I was asking. And buddy, buddy, blah. And in the end, I ended up holding him and giving him a hug and comforting him instead of the other way around. And even then, I knew that was wrong, but it's still that gaslighting of turning it back around and making you feel crazy. Um, and that was then repeated for months. And it was, in the end, I used to have panic attacks every time he touched me but he would keep on touching and in the end it was sometimes easier just to let him do what he wanted than to be going through ongoing touching for long periods of time um i wasn't allowed to go to my own home alone um so i stayed with him a lot because he lived with mum so i felt safer there because um his mum was around whereas if i was back at mine it felt like anything could happen um he there was a lot of control over um, if I wasn't working a day or I'd finished early, I had to go and meet him when he finished work. I had to get, even though I was on the opposite side of London, I had to go all the way up to North London, meet him at work, and then get the train back with him. There's a lot of control of where I went, things like that. And then one day, um, it was just after my granddad had died, and I was really upset that I wanted to go to work as a distraction. Um, but it was something stupid, I couldn't find my chef trousers anywhere. And he told me I couldn't go to work. And he was very manipulative and he sort of convinced me this was all my idea and things like that. I ended up calling in to, to work and explaining, look, my granddad just died. I want to be with my family. But I wasn't allowed to go and see my family. A wouldn't let me go. Um, but I got fired from that job because of that. They realised I couldn't do that and two weeks later rehired me. But when I asked them, are you going to then pay me for the time you forced me to have off. They said, only if you get a doctor's note. So I did get a doctor's note and they signed me off for a little bit longer because I said that was needed. So I took a month off, but in that month I was then trapped at A's house the entire month and things were getting worse and worse. And one thing I haven't mentioned is that chefing is a very toxic environment. It's very abusive as well. And that restaurant in particular was probably one of the worst abusive restaurants I've worked in. Mm. And it was very traumatic 
and they weren't very good at letting me have time off and had to go to the police or when things happened it was very much all about them and their money and the hours were long 18 hour days and be screamed at shouted at constantly and all these things so I was like on all fronts being it felt squeezed and it got to the point after going back to work and I didn't stay there long after that and I just went I can't do this anymore I just can't I'm not happy I didn't really realize why I wasn't happy I just knew I wasn't and then A told me he had applied to a job in China and he had got it and I just went oh my god this is my way out he knows I don't want to do a long distance relationship again. I can use this as a way out of this relationship. Um, he wanted you to go with him initially, didn't he? Yeah. Mm. And I was like, I'm not moving to China. Um, then he kept on, when I said I wouldn't go, he said, then no, no, I won't go. I had to spend ages trying to convince him to go because I, I, good experience for you. Don't revolve your life around me when we've only been in a relationship for six months. And it was um, this very confusing time. And in the end, I said, I, I, just had to, I just broke up with him and said, look, you're going to China. I'm not. I'm not doing long distance again. And I said, look, I've decided to move back down to Brighton to be with my family. I'm quitting my job. And I think at this time I'd already quit and was planning to move back down to Brighton. That timeline's all a bit confused. And in the end, we were just discussing it for ages. And in the end, I said, no, it's it, I'm done. The issue was with A, he was very controlling and manipulative, but also from his history of slamming his sister's fingers or hand in the door. I knew he had a history of violence, also with the sexual assault and things like that he'd done with me. And I knew he knew where I was being in Brighton. Mm, and you were frightened, weren't you? I was absolutely terrified. So what I did, because he wasn't going to China until the 31st of October, I decided to appease him for that amount of time. So I went up and we were supposed to be friends, but still a lot of the abuse continued for that amount of time. But I went up and stayed with him. But I had the control that I could then leave. I had to go back down to Brighton. Um, and I just, I had this repeat of, go up, appease him, come back down. And we did that for a few months. And I then, one thing we haven't mentioned is that when I left my job and when I left A, I applied to university. Yeah, well, it was a big change, wasn't it? You know, so yeah, it's, um, this is where, where things actually really do start to change, don't they, for you? Yeah, and I had applied to an illustration degree at the University of the Arts London. Yeah, that's the right one. <laughs> um, <laughs> And at this point, then, what we'll do is close it off for part one and we'll come back in part two and share, as we always do, sort of hopefully a slightly more positive side to some of this story. Because, yeah, I mean, thank you so much for sharing it so far. Yeah, no it's really difficult. And even it, as a mother as well, to hear your child go through such traumatic experiences. And at the time, I didn't actually fully know the story until much later when you decided to open it up for me so all those difficult times we sort of knew I think that by the end that you were frightened of Adam but we didn't really fully understand why and what had gone on and it was only later that you know Suriana fully opened up to us and told us exactly what is what, what she'd been going through and experiencing so thank you so much for listening to cold coffee podcast with Rihanna so far and we'll be back very shortly in part two you can follow our journey on Instagram, Facebook and YouTube at Cold Coffee Podcasts. If you enjoy listening to Cold Coffee Podcasts and would love to support the programme, then head over to Patreon at Cold Coffee Podcasts and become a member. This helps us to keep supporting the production of the show and also 10% of all contributions go to our chosen charities. Welcome back. This is part two of Cold Coffee Podcasts where we are talking to my beautiful daughter, Rihanna. Um, who's been sharing her really traumatic experiences. But really, I'm hoping now that we're going to get onto a, a sort of slightly more lighter and um, positive way forwards, which, again, after everything that you went through, Rihanna, I just admire the way that you really took control of your life. So we were just talking at the end of part one about how you then applied to go to university at the University of the Arts London. So tell us a little bit more about that. 
So it was a very offhanded decision. I was just like, I was just fed up. I was sort of rebelling against life. And I just went, okay, this is it. I just want to do something for myself for a few years. And I always loved painting and drawing. That was my escape in um, when I was a chef. I didn't paint and draw as much when I was with A, just because of didn't have the time, because also I wasn't allowed to go home very often. Um, but I was like, this is what I want to do. And I was expecting to go back to being a chef afterwards and working as a chef throughout. But I was like, just want to focus on me for a while. So in September, I moved back to London and I got in through clearing, just my portfolio, no qualifications. Yeah, I really want to interject here again, if that's OK, because obviously I'm full of admiration for my daughter, because that's what you know goes without saying. But I mean, the fact was that Rihanna had always done art, you know, and she'd been self-taught. So she'd gone through school and she hadn't, you hadn't really studied art that much at school. We didn't even do a GCSE. Uh, no, and, you know, but she'd... It was definitely a way through for you, wasn't it? Through, you know, obviously difficult periods with your mental health and everything else. So it was a real, as far as I could see it, it was a real release and escapism. And she, we could see the talent that she had. It was just awesome. And the fact that you actually got into university based on being self-taught on your own portfolio was just and I, because I know you won't blow your own trumpet, so I'm going to blow it for you. I don't know. I don't, I'm just like I don't know how it happened. <laughs> but you got in, and that I mean that we we always knew you would, and that was the point. I knew without a doubt you would get into your art university. And even me applying to university was a bit of a rebellion again against. So I applied for a foundation course in Brighton. Yeah. And I was trying to skip a year because it was a part time course. I wanted to go into second year because I was at that time 2021, 20, and I just didn't want to then do two years foundation, three years degree. Um, and they would go, oh, you would just never get into a fine art course with your portfolio. It's too illustrative. I didn't listen to that. And I applied to an illustration and visual media course, which was a very broad course. But I was like, I don't want to be taught by someone who's fat, like ne- using the words never. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was quite negative again, wasn't it? Yeah. You know, which, um, yeah, I can understand that. So um, I got into this course and I was moving back up to London. And then I was terrified again, because then not far again from A. Again, appeasing him, keeping him happy. He did find out where I was living at one point, which I, I wish never happened, but at the same time, couldn't control that. And then in October, he took his flight to China. And I felt this huge wave of release. But around 24 hours after his flight took off, I get a call saying it was all a scam. Mm. I'm coming back. And I'm like, no, this can't be happening. This was, this was my break-free moment. This was me regaining control. Me doing my degree was regaining my control over my career. Him going to China was regaining control. I'm like, I've just been through four more months of hell just for you to go to China so I can cut this nice and cleanly and you can't do anything to me while you're in China. And then he's coming back. He asked me to meet him at the airport. And I had an orthodontist appointment that day, so I went all the way from Kent all the way to Heathrow in one giant journey. I picked him up, his family were there, and we sat on the tube. And I just went, I don't want to see you anymore. I don't love you. I don't want to be with you. Um, I'd, and at that time, my phrase is, I want to break. And he wasn't happy, but in the end, he agreed. And we were texting for a while after that. And he kept on trying to see me, and I kept saying, I'm not ready to see you. And he then tried to manipulate me to go and see him. I had this little tiny duck toy. It was given to me by a really close friend um, in a restaurant I worked. Remind me of the good times. She said, look at this, it'll make you smile. It was such a tiny little thing. I remember it. It had no, like, monetary value, Mm -hmm. but the sentiment. And he had it, I left it there by accident. And he was trying to, like, bribe me to see him, saying, oh, if you come see me, I'll give you... We called it chicken, even though it was a duck. I'll give you chicken back. And I still said no. And for a long time, this was going on. And I was still scared to cut them out completely. And then me and my brother went to Borneo on holiday together. Both me and Sam loved traveling. And we went on a trip together. And I think that was the first time I told someone really what had happened. Like what went on. and. I remember we were both smokers at the time and I was sitting out on the balcony smoking and I was telling him the story 
and obviously him getting upset. But in that moment when I was away, I just somehow had the then the strength to block him on everything. And I'd hope to say that would be the end of it completely. And it pretty much is. But he then just tried to find creative ways of trying to get in contact. He tried to use, so I don't, he, I had an iPad. He tried to FaceTime me on it because I don't, I have Android phones, so he can contact me that way. He then tried to use family and, and making new social media pages to try and get into contact with me wow. mm. he was really trying and because he knew where I lived I was scared for a long time yeah I know you were um and I was looking over my shoulder constantly and then I'm, I was living in halls at the time and then luckily I moved and that was it I just felt suddenly free and that was the time I went okay this is over I think it took me quite a long time to tell you guys. I'm not even sure when I told you. I'm not sure either, to be perfectly honest. I think it came uh, out slowly it over came, time. Yeah, I think it did come out slowly over time. Obviously, we knew certain things, but then more and more and more of the story sort of started to come out. I do remember a little bit of a night when we went out for dinner, you and I, and we probably had a bit of wine between us. And uh, <laughs> and those were the times where you did, you know, sort of lose the inhibition sometimes to come out and start to share. So I do remember being in a restaurant in Brighton and you sharing, you know, some of what had gone on before. Yeah. Um, and for a long time, I didn't know what was going on. I just knew I was scared. Mm. Um, I didn't realise what had happened. And sometimes, even now, sometimes I doubt what has happened. I'm like, is it all in my head? Because he always twisted things. But I always go back to one memory, and that was the day, day or day after we broke up, and um, I went to pick up my stuff from his flat. And I was so scared of staying at home. I had stayed at a friend's that night because I didn't, I didn't feel safe at home. I went back. I went to his before he went to work to get my stuff. And it wasn't there. So I texted him saying, where's my stuff? Because he said, I'll leave it outside on the porch. It wasn't there. And um, he just threw it all at me. And then we, he then thought, oh, I was getting a taxi. But he ran after me and was trying to talk to me as we were walking up to the train station. And then we, once we got off the train, because he was going the same direction as me, we got off at Ballon. And this is the memory I always hold on to, to know that it wasn't all in my head. Um, I was, and I just went to him for a long time of lines of, I asked you to stop and you didn't. That should have been the end of it or something along the lines of that. And he just went, I knew you would throw that back in my face. <laughs> Dear me. Oh, yes, of course. <laughs> and that's a memory I always hold on to even now. Because still sometimes I doubt, is it just, it was just not a happy relationship? Mm. And I'm still, sometimes I go, is it all in my head? And I think this is a problem with domestic abuse, isn't it? Because often they, you know, the the, the narcissistic behaviour can make people really doubt what they what they are going through and whether they are the ones in the wrong and what have you. So it seems to be quite a common story. And I think there's a big belief, uh, under, there's a lack of understanding and empathy around often people who are in a domestic abuse situations. It's that why didn't I get out of it? Why didn't I do things differently? Why didn't I see it? You know, but I think when you have, when you are there with somebody who's manipulating you, you do start to doubt yourself. Yeah, and even it's nearly five years later now. I'm still some. I still have days where I doubt myself. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, it's just it was a weird time. Yeah, no. And it was. So let's move forward, though, shall we? Yeah, into there's just one thing. Of, yeah, I want to say, and that's I never went to the police about a. And people still ask me why I didn't. But because I didn't realise for probably around a year what had happened, I deleted his number, deleted all his texts, deleted everything. I had no evidence. And I'd already gone to the police once with no evidence. And that was a incredibly traumatic experience for me. I couldn't do it again. Yeah. And sometimes I now still wish that I went, just so there's a little note on his file somewhere, just in case it happens again. There's no reason why you couldn't, but that's for another conversation. So let's look uh, about your university course, shall we? You know, and how you were at university and um, where this where this led. So going into university, I had quite a different attitude to a lot of people. I was there. I just wanted to learn, to absorb. 
you would think a lot of students are like that when you're 18 they're um, just away from home for the first time they're all out partying and drinking yeah yeah i think it's quite common actually <laughs> and i had a completely different opinion or view of i'm going in to learn i was 2021 20, and i just want to get the most out of the stupid amount of money i paid for my course um and the first year i just went in and every workshop i learned something i just kept on going okay, this is being offered to me, I'm going to learn that. Yeah, you like, were like a little sponge, weren't you? Yeah. <laughs> and the way I was doing it, I was still working, and I was working nearly full-time um, at a restaurant my friend was working at. Um, he got me for a job. It's supposed to be part-time. Um, it was still 40 hours a week. But well, for, yeah, that's a good part-time job, isn't it? But for a chef, that is part-time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I was doing nine till four at university every day, and then going to work for five, finishing at midnight, one o'clock in the morning, and then doing repeats the next day in the week. Normally I had two evenings off a week. And then the weekend I was doing 18 hour days. So I was tired. And then um, after my first year of uni, I didn't get the best grades, um, mainly because I was doing loads of side projects because I just wanted to learn all these things. So I was a bit distracted with all these options. Um, and also I was diagnosed with dyslexia in my first year. Yeah, which we hadn't realised actually at school. It's interesting, isn't it? Because you were so academic, I know you struggled a little bit with English, but we certainly didn't recognise it, especially because um, James uh, is, you know, ultimately he's also di um, dys dyslexic. So we didn't sort of quite recognise it because it was quite different from his dyslexia, wasn't it, yeah. as well? So. And I was diagnosed just after I finished the year. So our school year ended in June. I got diagnosed in July. And to me, it's the way I process information. It's very much I read something and then straight away I've forgotten. So if I read an article and someone asked me a question about it. I couldn't remember what I'd mm -hmm. read. Like it was a processing thing. My spelling's not great. My grammar's not great. And it's something I questioned in school a few times, but got the same response that you're too smart for that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so in the second year, I then had more support on the writing side of things. Um, I missed the first month of university in the second year. I had some jaw surgery. Um, but I'd been traveling in that summer, which was great. And um, then went back to uni. And then a few months later, COVID hit. Yeah, yeah. And not long before COVID, a few weeks, I had a complete breakdown at work. And that was because I wasn't, again, in a healthy work environment. Yeah, chefing just yeah. not is. And I had quit my chefing job. And I just started as a barista. Because um, I, I, okay, I can do the early mornings instead. And it also forced me to have days off and things like that. And probably wasn't feeling quite so pressurised, I would yeah, imagine, as well as having thing. that, you know, sort of chefing environment, you know, which seems to be quite demanding and bullying environment, actually, yeah. to be honest, to be in a lot of the time. So I, um, and this was like a few weeks before COVID, and I was working with two jobs for a while because of my working period, um, or whatever it's called, um, resignation period. And, and then COVID hit, and I suddenly had no job. And I'd started my other job just before COVID didn't get furloughed. Um, so I was like, pure panic. Yeah, you had no money at all, did you, you know, in that regard, because of the lack of furlough and everything else. My landlord was refusing to give me a budge on rent. Mm. I luckily got some um, emergency funds from the university, um, which did help. I did have my student loan, but of course student loan is not that much, especially in London. And I couldn't really help out that much at all at the time either because, you know, obviously my income had just been lost as well and didn't really have any, you know, sort of back money, any savings to really sort of fall back on. So I was like, I'm not going to dwell on this. I'm going to be really positive. I was like, OK, I'm not working. So I've got all this time now to focus on university work. So I was like... You came home as well. I came home. You? I was like, I'm not doing this alone. Came home. Originally, I was only supposed to be coming home for like the weekend. We didn't <laughs> yeah. know what was happening. None of us did. And then I only had like a weekend worth of clothes. We had to fly back up to London. In That's right. <laughs> when we were supposed to not be doing that to get all my stuff. Shh. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I had to get all my work, university work, everything. And I came back down and just had this mindset. I'm just going to do as much. I'm going to get the best work I can do out. And it was hard for me because I was turning into a printmaker. So the workshop was like my place um 
but in the end I just focused on getting work done I had to plan my dissertations that time was really helpful and you also started therapy I believe during that time yeah I did and I didn't have much money for it but I said this is going to be an investment in me and I was putting off therapy for years I tried to get it on the NHS it never I waited two years on a waiting list finally got into therapy I went I'm actually going on a holiday or traveling for a couple of months can we start my first point when I get back and I went yeah that's absolutely fine I get back from traveling I get a letter saying you've missed too many appointments you've now been kicked off mm. and then so when I try and say no that wasn't the case I um but like no you've got to start the waiting list again mm. so I gave up on the NHS um so I finally did therapy and I started to confront a lot of things about who I was how I felt and one thing I did when starting the barista job um and during covid and afterwards was I decided pretending I just was going to be me and if people didn't like me who cared and that was a weight off my shoulders in itself mm -hmm. starting to love you for yeah. you starting to love yourself you know as you are and um at this point I was in a new relationship I had a good year or so off dating after everything that happened with a and now I'm with my partner now so we've been together for over three and a half years so um and he's massively supportive isn't he oh yeah he's a very different uh, <laughs> it's very different from the previous relationships put it that way so and um, we really like s yeah so um not this at that s sorry no you don't like s s is the first one no the the second the s second s it's so we're not call, are we not calling him s <laughs> no we were <laughs> another s um, <laughs> saying the partner we said oh we're calling the partner yeah sorry we're calling the partner um, <laughs> um but yeah no um so it was a different time and i just i decided to use covid to work on me and be happy and things like that and one thing during therapy i was always questioning and for a long time before a long time for is if I had autism yeah you had actually been querying it because we'd sort of like looked into it but at that time I didn't see it now it's I, I explained so many things but at the time I was just like very confused by it you know so but again it's about knowledge isn't yeah. it yeah and I tried to get um, diagnosed with autism or um was all the names have changed in the last few years. So at the time I was looking to get diagnosed with Asperger's or high functioning yeah. autism. They looked at B B B BPD at one point, That's didn't what, they? It's still in my file. Right. Um, and so when I was around 17, 18, um, we paid to go and see a private psychiatrist. We knew something was up more than depression and anxiety. And I said, I think I have Asperger's. And it went, can you give eye contact? I went, yes. Did you like trains as a child? no okay you can't have autism then mm -hmm. and that just put me off for so many years then going back to, to get an answer and they diagnosed me at the time with a condition called borderline personality disorder which has um a lot of stigma attached to it mm. so and i if you do look at bpd you look at my symptoms a lot of it does match but actually a lot of girls are misdiagnosed with BPD instead of autism. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think you know, girls seem to be missed off quite a lot with all of these conditions, yeah. don't they? Because they're more common and often more. Um, what's the word I'm looking for in terms of, you know, bo boys don't hide it as well as girls. I yeah. think you know, girls are very good at masking, where boys are just a bit more of an open book often. So they're not so you know not so good at being. Um, it, it, they're easier to diagnose. Put it that way. Yeah. So I, um, so I was going for university, still questioning this, and I didn't do anything about it. I just wanted to finish my degree. And I finished my degree. And a lot of my projects in the end in my final year were about domestic abuse. Yeah. And also PTSD, because even though I never got an official diagnosis, that's what I had. I still have. Um, and that was my way of processing what happened to me by creating imagery, because I struggled to get stuff out of my head. Yeah. If I able to get it out of my head onto a piece of paper, I was able to process. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that was really good for me, and I loved creating the work. It was quite emotional at times, but I don't regret it. It's uh, I got some beautiful work out of it. No, and I imagine I don't know. Correct me if I'm wrong, but that's quite good therapy. Yeah, itself, it was very you know, therapeutic. You, say, you know, so ultimately, that's that was been. I saw a change in you, and I thought it was beneficial. Yeah, and so I graduated. Well, I never 
it's got a graduation ceremony. No, because COVID again. Yeah. Yes, didn't, you know, and an, there was an online. We had an online one. A bit bizarre that was. And I have been offered to do one in person. But now at this point, a year and a half after I finished my degree, doesn't that feels weird. Yeah, yeah. I don't feel that urge to go back to that environment where I feel complete and done with. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I had turned down that offer. Also, it's a lot of money to graduate. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I remember when I did it myself. So, yes. I can't remember how much it was, but, um, yeah, by the time you get the gowns. And, and I did it for college, so you've got the, the photo of, it, of yeah, me in the hat. Yeah, exactly. So, so we have got those. <laughs> so I was like, okay, that's fine. Um, and so I graduated and then I decided to start looking at getting diagnosed with autism. And I was working in the coffee shop still. I'd been promoted. I was a supervisor. I was pretty much managing it. And I had one incident with my boss. And I had come to this point of, I knew I had autism. So when he started, I explained to him, I don't understand sarcasm very well. Um, there's all the different things like, don't understand sarcasm, I need you to be quite direct and blunt. I'm quite direct and blunt, all these different things. And honestly, he wasn't very good at his job. And he just liked to put everything on me to do. And one day I had had enough. And he, I just went to him, it was getting close to order cutoff point. And I went to him, are you going to do the orders? It's nearly 12 o'clock. He went, are you on strike or something today? And that really upset me. Didn't upset me in the moment, upset me a few weeks later. And I confronted him um, about it and said, that really upset me. Um, blah, 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 blah. He went, oh, it was only a joke. I'm like, well, it didn't feel like a joke. It felt like, and I explained all of it, was really calm about it. And he just said to me, can you try and not be autistic? <laughs> it's not funny, really. It's, it's not funny not, at but all. It is. You know, but it, it's it's tragic. That's the, that's the point, and you, it's just like unbelievable when you hear it. So yeah, and he kept on repeating it, saying it's not something I can fix. It's and he didn't use those direct words, but he was going on about can you learn to take a joke? Can you learn how to do sarcasm? And then he was going on about everything. And I then complained to his manager because what he said was wrong. Mm, yeah, very much but so. But we had the problem that we couldn't call it discrimination because I didn't have a piece of paper that said autism on it. Mm. And that one moment went, okay, this is time to do it. I knew the waiting list was incredibly long for um, getting diagnosis with um, the NHS. I was incredibly lucky. In the end, it only took six months. But when I first um, went to my GP about it, they told me two years. Mm. And I was just lucky because um, they were closing my local unit down for adult autism services. So they were having to get through everyone on the list before they closed. Mm, mm. So I was just, it's not lucky they're closing that department, but it's lucky no. for me to get the diagnosis. I believe in this day, that age, they are closing those sorts of services down. You know, It's, it's been reopened. Just, um, oh, has it? Oh, that's really good. Because they called me about getting my diagnosis sorted. Oh, okay. Because um, they didn't realise I had been ticked off the list. Right, That's okay. last, I was the last one. I was seen two days before they closed. Yeah, yeah. Um, But that gave me such a sense of, I now understand why I'm like myself. Yeah. And it was never an excuse for behaviour. But it's, it's helped me with things that I hate blinking lights or fluorescent lights or sometimes repetitive noises, things like that. Those little things which most people don't worry about. But if I'm at work and things like that happen, I can get really overwhelmed and overstimulated. Mm-hmm. And how I don't understand certain way people phrase things. And it gives me a... By saying I've got autism, it makes other people understand to be able to make their behaviour more um, open, more accessible yeah yeah and it's it's made a big change for me yeah because lots of people don't always understand it they say why do you need it and why, why do you need a label isn't it you know and i hear this so often you know why do you need a diagnosis why do you need a label you know what so what do you think about that um sometimes labels not for yourself mm. by giving someone else a label they're able to be more accessible because people who say oh why do you need a label they might be really open and accepting people who are able to change different people but a lot of people are just you should be neurotypical. Yeah. And they don't get it. They just believe you can change your behaviour. And they don't like to diagnose autism. It's what they call a pervasive diagnosis. So it affects every aspect of your life. And but it's given me a way to understand myself and understand my past. 
yeah, but yeah. able to communicate. And there are some negatives of being diagnosed that can make access to some things more difficult. But at the same time, I'm able to communicate what I need with people better. I can go to work and say, I need this change done because I have this. Instead of them going, oh, okay, you just have a bit of a problem you need sorting. Mm-hmm. They get out. They can see why that need is important. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it's a re- the label's about being able to communicate what you need. Yeah, yeah, which is brilliant. So where are we moving on to? So we're talking about we're talking about building your own self worth. you know, during you know, throughout all these things, the career change, much more positive relationship. You know, your therapy your diagnosis you know all these things i believe has really helped you build your own self-worth yeah, definitely um we do need to before we wrap up this you know this story um we do need to talk about um the family diagnosis then of BRCA. so obviously when i had my cancer diagnosis um for those of you who listen to my my podcast uh, will know that from having cancer, it was diagnosed that we had the BRCA gene, the BRCA1 gene within the family. Now that means that it's a 50-50 chance that this will be passed down to your future generations. So obviously Rihanna being my daughter is one of them. And um, you therefore obviously push forward to go and get your own BRCA diagnosis. So where did this lead to? So um, it took quite a long time from you giving me that phone call one night. Um, so it took a good, it was just under, it was around nine, ten months. Um, and I got diagnosed with the BRCA1 mutation. So I was positive last summer. So May time, I believe, May, May, June. And this then led into what are my options are, what are my choices? And straight away, I knew that I wanted the prophylactic preventative mastectomy. That was immediate. Even from when you called me that night saying, I've got the BRCA1 mutation, I went, went straight away to my partner i'm getting my boobs chopped off if i have that gene they're coming off just put this in some sort of context for people so that they understand what this actually what what having the BRCA1 gene means it actually means that in your lifetime that increases your breast cancer risk of up to 70 percent um you know of getting it within your lifetime and about 50 percent of ovarian cancer as well which is massive when you think, I think it's something like um, 13% of uh, people would normally, you know, can get um, the risk is get, of getting breast cancer and about only about two or 3%, I believe, for ovarian cancer. So, you know, the increase is huge. So this is the impact that it actually, the real impact that it actually has on families. And so for me, I'm so logical. To me, it's a bit like, okay, why would I keep them when it can prevent me getting cancer? And to me, like, the thing what's scared, like I've seen you go through cancer twice, like your sister go through, um, and die from breast cancer, and the chemo is the thing that always scared me. It was like, I don't want to go through chemo. No, I don't think anyone wants to. It's not on anyone's bucket list. And I, <laughs> um, I'm not very conscious in my body. Like, I'm just very much like I am who I am. Like, I wear, I wear quite quirky clothes. I've got weird coloured hair. To me, like, my boobs don't mean much to me. To me, it's more about how they feel on my body instead of the way they look. So I knew straight away I wanted to get them off. And I'm now going through the journey of going through that. So I am um, like had already my consultation with one of the surgeons and need to see the reconstruction surgeon. But it's a process of seeing so many different people. And yeah. some days you're like, oh, really positive about things. And sometimes you're like, oh. No, I think that's quite normal as well, you know, we have to, that's about being real ultimately. I mean, I know we're talking about sort of positive, powerful inspiration by positive people, but your story is massively inspirational how you come through it on a different side. But, you know, no, nobody actually can be positive 100% of yeah. every, every day either. So, you know, and it's quite normal to have those sorts of emotions. I, I think otherwise you've become quite robotic. And one thing I'm um, really, which really important to me, because sometimes, especially with the autism, I don't allow myself to process things. So I just work, 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 mm. or move on. And I try and say this positive person, but then I get this huge crash. Yeah, yeah. So I sometimes, I just say, I'm just going to sit with my emotions and see how I feel. I force myself to think and feel because it's just like, otherwise... You have to feel those things. You can't just ignore them. And, yeah. they're, and they're still important. 
I think I've blocked things for a long time and I'm only really in the last few years myself starting to realize that you have to sit with your emotions, that you have to allow them, you have to allow them to come through instead of yeah, keeping on going a lot of the time. That's really important to me is sitting with emotions and seeing how I feel and communicating them because um, I'm also not very good at communicating my emotions a lot of the time. Oh, you do a pretty good job in on the whole, you know, so, yeah. Um, so, but the main thing with me with it is I've talked to people about having the BRCA1 mutation and they go, oh, that must be so difficult. You must be so brave and things like that. And I'm like, I, and I'm not saying people aren't brave, but to me, it's a bit like we're doing what we have to do with the information we have got. And to me, I've been given a choice and I'm in control. So I'm making the choice what's best for me. Some people might be brave to make the choice of not having the surgery yeah, yeah. Um, because that's the right decision for them. Mm. So to me, I don't necessarily feel brave or things like that, but I'm so happy I'm in control. Yeah, yeah. And I think that, you, you, you know, as you say, it's about everyone making the right decision for them. And that's the point, isn't it? And as you say, being in control of your own situation, which is so important. And people say, oh, this must be the worst thing that happened to you. But because I'm in control, to me, it doesn't. Compared to those that year and a half I had with S&A where I was out of control of my entire life and sort of the years afterwards where I wasn't in control of my own emotions, now I'm like, no, I'm in control. So actually this is my choice. Yeah, yeah. This is about my future. Like me and my partner have to discuss like pre-genetic implantation for our children or future children to see if we can prevent our children having the gene and things like that. And it's a bit like we're just making decisions about our own control and what we can do. And to me, that's just giving me power to do what's right for me. Oh, I think this is a really good place. Have you got anything you want to add? I mean, we're, talk we're going to go move on to top tips in a minute, but is there anything you want to add to the story? I don't want to sort of naturally bring it to close if you feel like there's something else that you want to say, but I just think that's a really, really good sort of closing point. Um, the main thing for me is that I have no regrets. Yeah. Um, like... Even though I went through so much, I went for a career change. Um, I don't regret anything. Like, being a chef has given me a great skill for life. And I would have regretted always not doing it. Um, it's where I met my current partner, um, which I wouldn't change for the world. It's also given me loads of great life skills. Like, even just basic, like, communication, time management, all of that. Because now I work in a university as a printmaking technician, mm, which we mm. haven't mentioned. And I now work in the art field. Yeah. And I got that job with no prior experience because I had great transferable skills from being a chef and working in hospitality. Yeah. Um, I don't regret my relationships I had. Like I still treasure in my head those five great weeks I had with S at the beginning because they weren't bad memories. Mm. He might have tainted the rest of it, but I try and hold on to the good bits. Mm. And also, it's made me who I am today. Yeah, I'm yeah. really happy with who I am. Oh, well, I'm super proud of you, you know, so I really am super proud of you. I just want you to know that very publicly <laughs> that I am super proud of you. And, I'm, just, um, I'm just happy with who I am. And if I didn't go through my journey, then I wouldn't to be me. Yeah. And, you know, and we do love you for exactly who you are. So moving on to top tips, what, what, have you got one you want to share? One, two, you want to share with us? <laughs> um, <laughs> Can you remember what you wrote down? <laughs> remember one, um, the main one. Um, Which is? Don't blame yourself. Yeah. Because I, I did that for so long. I always thought it was my fault because that's what I was told. And I don't think I mentioned that. That S after what happened went to me, this is your fault. Um, I'm doing this. I think he texted me about it and said, oh, you got what you deserved. So I just was like, oh, this I deserved it. I was to blame. I'm like, don't do that now. I'm like, you're not. Uh, I blame myself for getting into a relationship with A when obviously I'd been through so much already and then got myself within a month into another abusive relationship. Now I'm like, oh, don't be an idiot. Mm -hmm. But still sometimes those thoughts creep in, but don't blame yourself. Yeah. yeah. Also, don't doubt yourself yeah um so i doubted myself and listened to the gaslighting i know that's really hard to not do but when i had that one niggly feeling in my stomach that this was wrong and i just went on it and i just got out so i listened to that one feeling when it came through but, but sometimes i know leaving a relationship is actually more dangerous than staying so sometimes it's about what's best for certain people yeah yeah 
Well, thank you so much. I mean, it's um, it's we we decided we'd do this one without James today, um, just because we thought it'd be quite nice to do sort of another door to share on this one. Um, it's always, as I explained earlier, really, really harrowing to hear the stories of what's happened to your child. But I'm always very, very thankful that you've shared it with us, with me um, as well. And I think it's great that you've actually had that honesty within our relationship too. And I just really want to thank you for coming on today and being so open about your journey. And I really hope that somebody else can get some of those takeaways from it. So. Thank you, Rihanna. No worries. Oh, thank you. Bye-bye, and we'll see you next time. Thank you. It's powerful inspiration by positive people. Cold Coffee. If you enjoy listening to Cold Coffee Podcasts and would love to support the programme, then head over to Patreon at Cold Coffee Podcasts and become a member. This helps us to keep supporting the production of the show and also 10% of all contributions go to our chosen charities. You can follow our journey on Instagram, Facebook and YouTube at Cold Coffee Podcasts.